When I was in seminary, it was in the early 1990s, I had a cousin who was in his late 20s and a pastor of a church down in East Kentucky, down in the mountains. And on a sunny Sunday afternoon in May, he and his wife decided to take their three young children out for ice cream before church that evening. And while driving down a country road under a canopy of trees on the way to church, after having had ice cream, a large branch broke off just as they were passing underneath it. And it killed, it crashed through the windshield, instantly killing both parents. The three children sitting in the back seat were unharmed, at least physically. The seven-year-old girl picked up her infant son, her brother, grasped the hand of her three-year-old brother, and walked back up to the main road to flag down help. In that very instant, a seven-year-old girl Enjoying her ice cream was thrust into the role of an adult, having to figure out what to do when the cries to her mom and dad went unanswered. As I said, I was in seminary, and as I have reflected on this event, I, can't, I couldn't help but wonder why at that moment, a split second earlier, and the branch hits the front of the car. A split second later, and it falls harmlessly behind the car. But at that very moment, a single electron lost its bonding energy, causing a cascade of events that that branch fell at that very moment. And I got to thinking, what's a second in our life? A lost shoe under the couch? taking a moment to clean ice cream off a dress that was spilt, patiently waiting for another car to stop sign. But that at that little, that moment, a little girl became mom, and my cousin passed away. The little girl said, the last thing she remembers is her dad exhaling his last breath. This event had a profound effect on my theology. It caused me to search deeper. They weren't on the way home from a bar. They were going to church to preach God's word. It didn't make sense. Well-meaning Christians told me that it was God's will for his glory. Doesn't help. When I tell this story, Christians reach out to comfort, but their events are so tragic that they transcend comfort. Family members took them in and raised them as their own with all the love that they could give them. But there's no substitute for mom and dad. There is no way to make it better. There is no good. It's tragic. There is no comfort. This past week, and past several years, I've been experiencing this with my mother now. Last week, when I was sitting with her, holding her hand, and she turned to me and asked me, how's your mom? And 
I said, you're my mom. She says, I am? The very person who protected me and put band-aids on my knees and hugged me and came running in the middle of the night when I had an earache. Well, you kind of get the picture where I'm heading. And many of you have had similar experiences. And these stories are not unique in our world or ever in the time of history. We all have experienced this in our families among ourselves. People struggle to maintain some type of equilibrium in their lives. And as one commentator said, human experience includes those dangerous and difficult times of disorientation when the sky actually does fall and the world does come to an end. And this disorientation can be psychological, sociological, or theological. It includes all aspects of our ordinary life and experiences. And this time of disorientation at times when a person are driven to extreme emotion and no comfort is found. As Isaiah said, we are, being, we are undone. We are beside ourselves. There is no speech. There is no safe reality from which to speak. There is loss of an ordinary, orderly life that is linked to the loss of words, or at least the inadequacy of ka speech. The Bible says that we groan. So how do we, what do we do, and how do we do it when there are no words, when we hear no answers? We feel no release from the pain, and when our dark moments engulf us, when God is absent and we feel abandoned, when our Heavenly Father, to whom we cry out, is silent. It is precisely because of this that one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 88. Psalm 88, many of you are familiar, has a very distinctive rhetoric. Many psalms follow a similar pattern of complaint, an act of penance and petitioning, motivation for the complaint ending in God's grace and answer that is given in thanksgiving and praise. However, Psalm 88 is particularly notorious and quite distinctive from all the others. In other psalms, the laments and the complaints are almost always answered. They end in a satisfactory resolution expressed as praise and thanks. But in Psalm 88, the prayers go unanswered. Despite the voice of urgent need, the author's deep crisis and passionate calling out to God, God is silent. Now this creates a particular theological problem. What do we do? The Bible is a Bible of hope and deliverance. So how does the psalm fit in the Bible? And what do we do with this psalm? Let's talk a little bit about psalms in general. And then more specifically about Psalm 88. Eugene Peterson tells us that poetry is a language used with personal intensity. It is not decorative speech. Poets tell us what our eyes blurred with too much gawking and our ears dulled with too much chatter miss. 
around us and within us. Poets use words to drag in us into the depth of reality. They do it not by reporting how life is, by pushing and pulling us into the middle of it. Poetry grasps for the juggler. And far from being cosmetic language, it is intestinal. It is gut level. It is root level. Poets don't do so much tell us what we never knew, but it brings us into the recognition of what is latent, what we have forgotten, what we have overlooked, or what we have suppressed. Michael Fishbrand tells us that a text in the Bible is like texture, where words are woven into a fabric of meaning that have a characteristic feel to them. The Psalms are poetry, and the Psalms are prayer. This is the texture of the text. In a similar vein, Eugene Peterson again tells us that a text has texture. And when our fingers touch textile, we know that they are good by how they are feel. Silk is good for the hair ribbons. Denim for bib overhauls. Wool for the ski sweater. When our eyes go over the words of a text in the Psalms, our tongues and lips reproduce the sound of the words, we get a feel for how they should be used. And so there are many ways to talk about the Psalms and to break them down. But the one that I propose this morning is by Walter um, Brigerman which he developed in his essay on Psalms and the Life of Faith. And he suggests a topology of a function in which he proposes to look at the Psalms as three orientations. That takes us into the account of what the worshiper's stance is or what his orientation is toward God as they pray. And the three categories are as follow, and there are others, but this is the one I'll be using, is the psalm of orientation, in which the psalmists are in tune with God. And life is good, our stomachs are full, and our families are happy and healthy, and we praise God. There's the psalm of reorientation, where the psalmist acknowledges the tra tragedies of life, but are reconciled back to God. Life becomes good again. Life becomes well-ordered and is represented by praise and thanks. And then there's the psalm of disorientation in which the psalmist feels estranged from God. Life seems to have turned upside down and nothing seems to make sense. We are disoriented. The psalm of disorientation is represented by Psalm 88 as the most extreme example, in contrast to other psalms of disorientation, which usually ends with some expression of trust or thanksgiving or praise. Psalm 88 has none of the thanks or praise elements. Instead, it is a very dark psalm, and it is simply ends on a very dark, 
dark note. Psalm 88 is a lament. And it fits the lament pattern somewhat, but it is unique. There is no other psalm like it because it presents such a bleak picture. It has no praise. It just ends. It ends on a very depressing note. It ends with a horrible groan. One commentator says it is the darkest corner of the Psalms. Psalms 88 is a pray prayer for help and ends without resolution. The author praying sees the problem as God. Its imagery provides an unflinching view of how humans feel as if God has not only abandoned them, but God himself has caused the problem. Ancient prayers can be very frank. So we're going to look at Psalm 88, and we're going to break it into three sections. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9, which is to cry out to God. And verses 10 through 12, as questioning God. And then 13 to 18, as accusing God. Psalm 88, verse 1, God, it reads, God of my salvation, daily I cry out passionately for help. Nightly I am before you. May my prayer get your attention. Listen to my cry. For my soul is saturated with distress, and my life is near Sheol. This is going to be a common theme as we read through Psalm 88. It's the theme of Sheol and what does that mean. So I want to take some time now to read and talk about what Sheol is. There are similar terms of Sheol. Sometimes it uses the word pit, grave, depth, death. Sheol is often thought of, if we think of it in the Old Testament, as hell. But this is a poor descriptor. When hell comes to mind, we tend to think more often than not about the visual imagery of Dante's Inferno, written in the 14th century poem of Divine Comedy. A strange book. As you have known and may remember, Dante joined, journeyed through nine levels of fire and brimstone of increasing wickedness which designed for the unrepentant soul, and it's where unbelievers go. I'm going to argue that Sheol is different. It's used approximately 60, 65 times in the Hebrew Bible, and it ha comes from the wor root word Sheol, which can have the meaning of extinguished. The etymology, or where this root came from, is really quite unclear. But it's usually used in the term, common terms, for when people, where people go when they die. It connotes going down into the ground. But it is just elevated language for the Hebrew word kavar, which is grave. Yet it implies more. It's an entry into the underworld. The Hebrew Bible is describing the Old Testament. It doesn't really have a clear cut description of what happens to a person when they die. The Old Testament is fairly silent. 
The text identifies it as the abode of the dead, generally located in the depths of the earth. And the image of Sheol conjures up the world of a shadow, dark existence, cut off from the presence of God, much like we read in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. It's the cell, it's the separation from God. It's somewhat related to the Greek use of Hades, in the ancient Greek religion and myth, Hades is the god of the dead and the king of the underworld. In mythology, the Greek underworld is the under place where souls go after death. The original Greek idea of the afterlife is that at the moment of death, the soul is separated from the corpse, taking on the shape of the former self and is transported to the entrance of the underworld. The underworld itself, referred to as Hades, is described as being either on the outer bounds of the ocean, which gives you an idea why they feared the ocean so much in those days, or beneath the depths and the ends of the earth. But Sheol was the place to which all who died went, regardless of whether they were righteous or they were wicked. Sheol is the poetic parallel for death. It's the opposite of living. It's sometimes referred to as pit, chasm, oblivion, and it was the fate of all the people on the earth. The wicked were sent there early, while the righteous were rewarded with a long life, but they eventually went there. And this is the view of the Old Testament of death, of the grave. They're in the second temple period, and this is the period you might remember as the Israelites were taken into captivity in Babylon. The Persians conquered the Babylonians, and after 70 years of captivity, they set the Israel free to come back and rebuild the temple. So around 517 BC, the second temple was built, and this went through this time to the time of Christ and up to the time about 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the second temple. And it usually goes to about 100 AD. But this period of time is what we call the second temple period. And there was a lot of developing going on in this time. And one of the things is that, um, this, that the negative attitude about death and Sheol developed into a concept of a post death punishment, punishment that eventually evolved into what the New Testament was referring to as hell. When people went to the grave upon death and they entered some type of underworld, the Hebrew Bible consistently images the same fate for both the righteous and the wicked. The righteous were blessed with long life and with many possessions, and their enemies were conquered. The wicked were cursed with short life, poverty, and their enemies constantly tormented them. Judgment was not in the afterlife. Judgment occurred here in this life on this world. That's why the land was so important. 
the land of Israel was their blessing. That was an indication that God was with them because they all faced Sheol eventually. The great kings and the conquerors ended up in Sheol. Jacob will join Joseph in Sheol. Saul will join Samuel. And the wicked kings of Babylon and Egypt went there as well. The mighty and the mink, meek, righteous and wicked, all ended up the same way. Death, death was the great equalizer. Of course, you're asking, what about Abraham's bosom? Well, this is mentioned once in the New Testament um, with Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16. And it's a parable that Jesus told who was trying to get Israel to repent. And it's an indication of the fuller revelation that Jesus was bringing about the separation of the good and the wicked. These ideas are actually developed in the Second Temple period in the books of First Enoch and Fourth, Ma Fourth Maccabees. However, at the time of the Psalms was written, the author would have no idea of this concept in mind. It was not his worldview or the air he breathed. It was a dismal future. Do you see the good news of Jesus? Then he's facing this world that Jesus comes and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened. I will give you rest. This are for people whose mindset that was Sheol. He says, no, I will give you life. And you will join me and my Father in heaven. The wicked will go off. This was good news to a people who lived with the idea of a Sheol, that death was the final place. The good news of Jesus takes on new meaning. In Psalm 88, we continue as the speaker tries to convince God to deliver him from an early death by a stab describing how terrible it is to be dead, and which brings a total loss of life, figure, and power. And verse 4, he says, I am thought of one as among those going down to the pit, Sheol. I am a helpless person without strength. With the dead, I am set free, like a wounded person laying in a grave, whom you do not remember anymore, who has cut me off from your hand. Now, the translation here is from the Septuagint, because the Septuagint was written in the Second Temple period around 400 B.C. and was a Greek translation of the Hebrew. But it also gave us some idea, gives us some idea of the interpretation of how they understood the Old Testament. With the dead, I am set free. In this sense, it's the same idea of being set free from slavery, from Egypt, free from this world to walk into the next. And here is somewhat ironic, set free among the dead, 
which would imply not free from troubles at all. I am free from this world of slavery only to walk in the wilderness. I still have troubles. I am Sheol, and you are not answering me. In verse 6, you have put me at the bottom of the pit, the darkest place in the depth. And he's crying out. And God is not listening. God is silent. Death and grave, Sheol is a frightening, ungodly place. And the universality of death, it's a bad place to be avoided as long as possible. To live long and was a blessing. Because death is going to come. Your only blessing was to live to a ripe old age. And you hear that in the Old Testament. He lived to a ripe old age. But ultimately he went to Sheol. Because there is no hope in the afterlife. Jesus was good news. Your anger lies heavily upon me. And all your waves you afflict me. Or as I retranslate it. Your anger is like a relentless wave that beats heavily upon me. Jesus' good news of deliverance in eternity with the Father is surely good news. The next part is the questioning of God. The text continues by noting how for the righteous and for the wicked, God has no relationship with the dead. This is the psalmist's view. In verse 9 and 10 through 12, there are six, a series of six rhetorical questions that function to motivate Yahweh. The purpose of the questions is to establish that the suffering and the death of the author, the psalmist that's crying out, have direct and devastating consequences for Yahweh, for God. And the answers assumed with all these questions is no. And the psalmist almost would raise in his fist to the, to the Yahweh. Are Yahweh's miracles performed for dead people? No. So Yahweh, you must act before it is too late. Do dead people praise Yahweh? No. If Yahweh wants to be praised, Yahweh better act pretty soon and save me. Is Yahweh's steadfast love celebrated among the dead? No. Is Yahweh's fidelity appreciated by the dead? No. Are Yahweh's miracles acknowledged in the realm of the dead? No. Are Yahweh's past saving deeds remembered by the dead? No. Basically, the author here is appealing to God's self-interest. The dead can't worship you, so if you want to be worshipped, you better save me. But the Lord God, if you want me to praise and appreciate you, you better do it before I die. Because when I am dead, you ain't getting no more praise and no more worship from me. It's almost a threat. When I was a chaplain student, student chaplain at United hospital in St. Paul when I was in seminary. I was called to the emergency room by a young mother who had suffered several tragedies leading up to this and had brought her 
infant in who was very sick in the emergency room and she cried out, why is God punish me, punishing me? Where is God? I don't deserve this. Why is he doing this to me? The cry was a cry of God's silence, of the lament of the problems of the psalm. We've all felt it. What do we do? And I prayed with her and I tried to assure her and I sat with her. Sometimes that's the best thing, it's just to sit with somebody. The final section of this psalm is the psalms of accusation against God, accusing God. In 13 he says, But I call to you for help, Lord. In the morning my prayers confront you. Why do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? From my youth I have been suffering at near death. Sheol place without you. I suffer your horrors and I am perplexed. That word may not be exactly in your translation. Perplexed is based on the reading again of the Septuagint, which would have been the understanding and interpretation during the second temple period. A perplexed, the young mother crying out, why are you doing this? What have I done? to deserve this. Why is my child here? And he continues, your wrath has swept over me. Your assaults destroy me. They surround me like the flood all day long and all my sides, they close in on me. You have removed my friend and neighbor from me. And it ends with a very powerful line, darkness is my only friend. So what do we do with darkness and the silence of God, especially in the face of tragedy when the mere words are not enough. The point here is the Bible needs to be read in the whole context of the scriptures. Preceding Psalm 88 is Psalm 87, which ends with singers and dancers alight saying, my whole source of joy is in you. And immediately following Psalm 88 is Psalm 89, which begins with, I will sing about the Lord's faithfulness forever. But what we have is a temporary point in the Psalms to show the darkness of darkness, but it is surrounded and sandwiched by the light of God. We shouldn't soften this Psalm of lamenting, Many commentators try to. We should absorb the darkness of the text as it is written. This text was written in a pre-cross era. And he had to acknowledge there was no hope. There was no, the evil world impacted them. But yet we have felt the hollowness of our own prayers, even the prayers of a seven-year-old girl. When Christians ponder the silence of God in the face of human need, they are drawn to the cross of Jesus. And the reality, the horrible reality of Friday's crucifixion 
It's the silence that Jesus felt on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But as well as Jesus knew the Psalms, you have to know and believe that he knew Psalm 88. And he felt alone on the cross. Total divine abandonment, something we've never felt. We've always had God. The Son felt total divine abandonment. Augustine reads Psalm 88 as a description of Christ's suffering. In our modern world, unanswered prayers is a deep point of faith. There is much to be said about silence and pain. Sometimes we hear God more clearly in our pain. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, says that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. But it is God who helps us in our weakest hours. Paul writes in Romans, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, for the Spirit himself intercedes for us, groaning too deep for words. And at times, so at times it's good to sit in silence before God. Mother Teresa was asked how she prays. She says she quietly listens to God. And when asked, what does God say? She responded, he listens to me. There's no easy world. Silence is loud. So how do we do it? I'm going to offer you the solution to Psalm 88, and that is the church. We are not made to be alone. We are made for each other, husband and wife, siblings, friends, God, the community of believers, the church. The church has the responsibility to come alongside those walking in a season of darkness and support them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, says fellowship serves to make the individual free, strong, and mature. It has to take him by the hand for a while in order that he may learn again to walk by himself. For the last many weeks, Aaron has been preaching through the book of Ephesians which is about the unity of the church. Many weeks of Aaron talking about the role of the church and how it functions. So I am going to read just a portion of it to you because it's the most clear. There is one body and one spirit. Just if you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive and he gave gifts to the people. But when he descended, ascended, which means also that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth. Think Sheol. The people he was preaching to would have had the Sheol concept. He had descended to the lower parts of the earth where there are abandoned people and there are no, there is no hope. 
and they're alone, separate from God. The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some of to be apostles and the prophets and some evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the working of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's Son growing into maturity with a statute measured by Christ's fullness. Do you see the good news in the context of people who have served for thousands of years under the Sheol concept? Everyone went through, righteous and unrighteous, and Jesus says, comes, says, I have good news. God brought his people together, Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised, to be united with him as one body. Is the church. When God is silent, the pastor speaks. When we think we are unworthy to be part of the church, we, re we receive baptism to cleanse us. When we feel that we are not worthy to be part of the church, we receive communion together with the church to remind us that Christ's death makes us worthy. It is Christ. When we hurt so bad we can't walk any further, the body of Christ carries us. God speaks to us through his church to keep us from going out on our own way, just as we want our family to be united. The Father wants his family united. So we worship together. We work together. We hear together and we heal together. I'm going to end with a story that many of you know very well. Some of you may, this may be the first time. How do we find peace? Horatio Spafford knew something about life's unexpected challenges. He was a successful attorney and real estate investor who lost in a fortune in the great fire, Chicago fire of 1871. And about that same time, his four-year-old son died from scarlet fever. Thinking a vacation would do his family some good, he sent his wife and four daughters on a ship to England, planning to join them after he finished up some business at home. However, while crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship was involved in a terrible collision and sank. More than 200 people lost their lives. Arriving in England, his wife, Anna, was the sole survivor. His four daughters perished. She sent a telegram to her husband that began, Saved alone, what should I do? Horatio immediately set sail for England at the point in the voyage where they began to pass the point where the ship was lost and with his daughters, the captain of the ship made him aware of this is where it occurred. We were now passing the point of the shipwreck. Horatio thought about his daughters 
about his son, about his life, and words of comfort and hope filled his heart and mind. And he wrote them down, and they have since become the well-known hymn, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like the sea bellows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul.